next hour. Jim will have it down by then. That's Jim Sexton. But, uh... <laughs> you all really sounded well on that. I know it's, you know, learning a new song, but we'll do it a few times, and I think that, uh, everyone can catch on. That sounded, you know, that almost sounded as good as when we had 200 people in here, Marguerite Tongren's, uh, memorial service. It really sounded good. I don't know if you heard it out there, but see, I'm up here where I can hear everybody. Your notes. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this uh, morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. Have a few moments of silent prayer so that you can use 1 John 1, 9 in the privacy of your priesthood if necessary. Confession of sin means to simply admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father. He instantly forgives us, cleanses us. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We are restored to fellowship so that we can resume our Christian walk. Let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, that your word is that which gives us light and illumination. And as the psalmist said, it's in your light that we see light. It is in the light of your truth that we understand reality. Now, Father, as we focus and concentrate on the teaching of your word, we pray that under God, the Holy Spirit, we will be able to understand these things, comprehend them, and that we would respond to his challenge to us to apply your word. Father, we thank you for the freedoms that we have as believers to gather together in this country to, to freely teach your word. We pray that those freedoms would continue, that you would continue to protect this nation, that this nation that is such a bulwark of support for the state of Israel, this nation that continues to send out missionaries like Jim and Phyllis to take the gospel to people who have not heard it in foreign countries and other cultures. Father, we pray that this country's freedoms might continue, that you would continue to protect and preserve it. Now, Father, as we come to study your word today, again, we pray that you'd help us to focus on it and to concentrate and be responsive to it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This morning we continue our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses... 
try to cover verses 4 through 12 this morning. Little review is necessary because Paul develops a very important argument. By argument, I mean, I don't mean like it's normally used in a day-to-day basis as some sort of disagreement between two people, but as a lawyer, philosopher uses the term developing a principle, developing a line of reasoning to make a point. And take it, let's go back to the context in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We see that there's a problem in Corinth. There's numerous problems that we're going to study as we go through 1 Corinthians, but the first problem is that there are divisions in the congregation. They have lined themselves up with different teachers, different personalities. One is saying that they're, they're followers of Paul, another of Peter, another of Apollos, and then there's that super spiritual crowd that says that they are of Jesus. And we still have those kinds of divisions in churches today, and and uh, along with that, there develop many personal problems, personal disagreements, divisiveness, enmities, jealousies, as Paul's going to point out. And whether that is in the context of a local church and divisions there, whether it's in the context of personal relationships, we all know that as living in our modern psycho-babble culture, we have a certain predisposed approach to try to solve personal problems. It's not at all like the Apostle Paul addresses it. So maybe we ought to, as believers, step back a little bit and, and, and think about what it is that, that Paul is, is doing here methodologically to solve problems. He doesn't go to the problem itself. He doesn't say, okay, what gave rise to the disagreements? He goes to the root problem, and that is that they don't really understand. They're not applying the doctrine of positional truth, that is, that they're who they are in Jesus Christ and the resources that they have been given in Jesus Christ. And he begins by emphasizing this, addressing them as those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be saints back in verse 2. Verse 4, he reminds them of the fact that they have been enriched in everything in Christ. And then he begins to present the problem in verse 10 that there are now divisions among them, some saying they're of a Peter or Paul, some of Apollo, some of Cephas, and some of Christ. And then he goes to the heart of the issue, which is that they're still thinking like a pagan. They're still thinking like an unbeliever. They are thinking in terms of the human viewpoint wisdom schemes of their Greek culture. And therefore, they're because they are thinking in the wrong frame of reference, they have false priorities, they have false values, and that's causing these divisions. So he's addressing the, the real core problem is when you have interpersonal problems, it's because you're thinking like a pagan. You're thinking like an unbeliever, and your value, your scale of values has become all distorted because you're not, no longer thinking biblically. So he's going to address biblical thinking, which he calls the wisdom of God, and that bi- biblical thinking is really only understandable to those who are and have become believers. So he comes to verse 14 of chapter 2 where he says that the natural man, that is the sukikos man or soulish person, the unbeliever cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. And we studied that in that passage in detail and we saw that that spirituality becomes a key word in this section. It's used in the term spiritually is used in verse 14. Spirituality or spiritual is used again in chapter 3, uh, verse 1 through 3. And yet there are some, there are two different dimensions to this. And so we have to understand that. We have to understand that words do not always mean the same thing every time you see them. That context plays an important part and, and some words have layers 
of meaning. You, you know that. You look a word up in a dictionary and it will list three, four, five, six different meanings for a word. And sometimes some of those meanings seem to be uh, quite different from other meanings. Uh, you may not know this, but uh, when in a dictionary listing, the first meaning listed is the most common usage of the word. The second is the second most common uh, on down through the list. Now, when Paul uses this word spirituality or spiritual here in these verses, there are two dimensions. Both are present, even though he emphasizes different aspects. When he speaks of spirituality in verse 14, he's primarily speaking of being saved, being a regenerate believer, being born again, having a or possessing a human spirit, because that's in contrast to the sukikos or soulish man who doesn't possess a human spirit. We've grafted this way. When Adam was created, he had a human body. Then God breathed into it a soul and a spirit. The soul is made up of elements such as a self-consciousness, mentality, volition, emotion, conscience. This makes up the soul. And then there is another immaterial part, the human spirit, and they work together. They are so closely intertwined that in many places the word soul can speak of both or the word spirit can speak of both, like like a hand in a glove. I think we're developing that analogy in prep school, that when your hand is in a glove, you may speak of the grabbing an object. Grab that with your glove. Well, you're really grabbing it with both the hand and the glove, but let's say you're um, you're in a, a kitchen somewhere and you're dealing with a hot pot or pan and you have your hand in a in a thick insulated mitten and you say grab it with that glove on. You want to you're emphasizing the fact that you better have the glove on when you grab it to protect your hand, but you're grabbing it with your hand, not with the glove alone. So the glove speaks of both. Some, or you made you say grab it with your hand, and you are assuming that the person has the glove on the hand, but you're emphasizing the hand as opposed to the glove aspect. So, so we do that in common language, and, and yet uh, the Scriptures are clear from passages we've looked at, such as the one we frequently quote, Hebrews 4.12, about the Word of God being able to discern between soul and spirit, that the Bible draws a clear distinction between these two elements. Well, when Adam sinned, something happened to him so that he could no longer have a relationship with God. He could no longer walk with God. God had warned him that the day he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would certainly die. Well, he didn't die physically, but something was lost, and that was that um, element of the human spirit. The human spirit was gone. He still could think. He still had uh, self-consciousness, he still had a conscience, but these elements of the soul no longer function as God intended them to function because they were no longer united with that other element, the human spirit. So they could not function or they were limited in their function towards God and could not understand the Word of God or the truth of God. So Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, the Sukikos man cannot understand the things of God, but the spiritual man can. So there, spiritual refers to the person who possesses a human spirit. And I made the point that as emphasizing this as regeneration and possessing of the human spirit, that which we get when we are saved, that's what Jesus referred to as being born again in his conversation with Nicodemus, that they receive something at salvation that is something new, it's this human spirit. And in the context, this must be the human spirit for two reasons. Number one, Paul has said back in uh, verse 8 
that none of the rulers of this age knew that Jesus was the Lord of glory, for had they known it, they would not have crucified it. Well, those religious and political leaders that Paul's referring to were still under an Old Testament economy. That means it was not possible for them to possess the Holy Spirit. And so he can't be using this argument here to refer to possession of the Holy Spirit because it wouldn't apply to the rulers of this age. Second, he is quoting a passage from Isaiah, I has not seen or ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. We studied that, saw that the things refers to that which God revealed in Scripture, and that being a quote from the Old Testament, once again, it described a mechanic that was available to the Old Testament believer. Once again, therefore, in verse 14, Paul can't be talking about the Holy Spirit as being the crucial element for being able to understand the things of God because that wouldn't apply to Old Testament believers. So spiritual in verse 14 contextually must refer to the human spirit and it excludes the Holy Spirit as an option. So New Testament believers, though, also get something at salvation Old Testament believers didn't get. We get at regeneration the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit, which Paul will emphasize at the end of chapter 3, that God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in each one of us, and we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. So he is going to bring that in. That's not far from his thought when he uses this word pneumatikos, because he uses that same word in Galatians 6.1, And in the context of Galatians 6.1, he's talking about the believer that is not only walking by the Spirit, but the one in whom the fruit of the Spirit is being produced. There he says, those who are spiritual restore or mend those who have uh, uh, fallen away, those who have had problems in the spiritual life and succumbed to carnality and walking in the flesh. So this word spiritual has takes on different shades of meaning depending on the context in which it is used. And we have to make sure we do that. So in chapter 2, verse 14, it refers primarily to being regenerate. And in 6.1 of Galatians, it almost carries with it the connotation of maturity. But in chapter 3, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians, it, ha- it, is, it is in contrast to the, the believer who is living or whose life is characterized by the flesh or the sin nature. So there we see that it's emphasizing an absolute contrast, that, that you're either spiritual or you're carnal. That's the same thing Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by means of the Spirit and you will not or it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the works of the sin nature. So it's clearly setting up the fact that there are absolutes. You're either walking by the Holy Spirit or walking according to the sin nature. If you're walking by the Holy Spirit, then you can be said to be spiritual. If you're walking according to the flesh, you can be said to be fleshly or, as the King James translated it, carnal. And that word is entered into the uh, mainstream of theological vocabulary. Now, Galatians 6, one tells us that there's an additional element to this word sometimes, and that is that it relates to the progress of growth, and that is maturity. So context is everything for understanding this word. And uh, now that we've had that background, we can get on to our study in uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, let's remind ourselves of the basic flow here. 
We have our eternal realities. Somehow I set all this up this morning, and when I brought it over to this computer, it changed the colors on me. Uh, eternal realities and temporal realities. Can you see that? Well, it's familiar enough for you. On the one side, we have our position in Christ. This is what Paul emphasizes as a foundation for what he is saying to the Corinthians to solve their problem. We are entered into Christ by the God, uh, God the Holy Spirit. We are baptized or identified with Christ by means of the Holy Spirit at salvation. That is our eternal reality. It can never change. Then we have our day-to-day experience. Uh, when we are walking by the Holy Spirit, we are also being filled by God the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. By walking by the Spirit, fruit is produced. But sometimes we choose to not walk by the Holy Spirit. And at that instant, we leave the right circle, the walking in the light, and we walk in darkness. We're energized by the sin nature, and that produces the works of the sin nature. The only way to return into the light, walk by means of the Holy Spirit, and be filled by Him is to confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9. So the carnal believer is the believer that is out of fellowship, filled by the, not filled by the Spirit, not walking by the Spirit. In other words, he's walking in darkness, walking by the, by the, in the flesh. And that, these are all the various terms that are used in the Scripture to describe this. So for last week we studied the first three verses, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual, that is, as to those living like a regenerate person walking by the Holy Spirit, but as to carnal, that is, as to fleshly, those whose life was characterized by the sin nature. And he says, as to babes in Christ, and I pointed out that's not immaturity there. He doesn't use the word brephos, meaning a, a helpless infant. He uses the word napios, meaning an a, uh, an older or more mature individual who's basically ignorant and operating, li- acting like a baby because he's ignorant. Remember, ignorance is the issue here. That's They're operating on human viewpoint thinking and not divine viewpoint thinking. They're ignorant of the categories of, of God's Word, so they're ig- ignoring them, and he insults them. It's a pejorative word. It's an insulting term to call somebody a an adult and a more mature person, someone who's been a believer for a while, uh, a napios, just like calling, uh, you might say to your your uh, 15 or 16-year-old teenager sometime when they're acting like an 8-year-old, you're, you're acting like a baby. It's not that they're helpless, it's that they're, they're uh, no longer acting as they should be. Verse 2, Paul reminds them that when he first came, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. That was because at that point they were, they were spiritually, spiritual infants. They were brephos at that point in time. And now he says, even now you are not able. And the reason they aren't able now is not because they're still brephos. They've had plenty of time. In fact, two or three years has gone by. They should have matured. They should have grown. They should have been walking by the Holy Spirit, but they're not, and their life is still characterized by carnality, by the sin nature. He says "You in verse 3, For you are still fleshly. You're still living a life characterized by the sin nature and all that that entails. Or since there is jealousy and strife among you, and that's we saw last time in Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, that's a characteristic of the sin nature. Jealousy and strife are listed among the works of the flesh there in Galatians 5. And so Paul says, since there is this element 
in your life and in the life of the congregation? Are you not living according to the sin nature? And are you not walking like mere men? And by that, what he means is that they're still walking like unbelievers. Their spiritual life is still that of an unbeliever. And this emphasizes the fact that uh, contrary to what the Lordship Salvation crowd says, that a believer can live like an unbeliever. His life can look like an unbeliever. He can talk like an unbeliever, think like an unbeliever, live like an unbeliever. He can be engaged in all of the activities of, of the most uh, horrible lifestyle of an unbeliever that you can think of because he's walking like a man. He cannot produce the fruit of the Spirit. He will not produce it unless he is making a personal decision to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, and that is not automatically going to happen. See, Lordship Salvation teaches that that's automatically going to happen if you're a true believer. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that after salvation, you have a second important decision to make, and that is what are you going to do with this new spiritual life that God has given you? Are you going to remain a baby, a napios? Are you going to grow up and mature and become an experiential adult, spiritually mature, so that you can uh, fulfill the ministry that God has given to each of you? See, at the moment of salvation, whether you realized it or not, you entered into full-time Christian service. And you're either going to be a good servant of God or a bad servant of God. The question is not are you going to be a servant or not. It's what kind. See, that's what Paul is headed to here is because eventually we're, we are going to be evaluated in terms of our spiritual growth and what we've done with the time that we've been given here on earth. And that evaluation is called the judgment seat of Christ, which is the focus of the last part of this chapter. It says, are you not walking like mere men? For explanation, verse 4, he begins with far the Greek particle gar, which always indicates an explanation. For when one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Paul. See, that takes us right back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where he pointed out that this was the core of the division. So starting in verse 4, he begins to pull together what he has said in the last part of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 to drive it home in terms of application and solving these interpersonal problems developing from the mental attitude sins of, of jealousy and arrogance. So he begins to make uh, application. Now remember, the problem is that they were identifying in cliques with certain leaders, sort of almost like personality cults, but this was typical in the Greek culture in the various philosophical schools. But to divide up like this, Paul says, is really operating on the sin nature. Now here we have a diagram of our sin nature. We've seen that the sin nature is driven or motivated by lusts. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.16 that you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's the core motivation. Sin nature produces works in two areas. It produces good deeds. That's why the Pharisees were so good. It came from their sin nature. Jesus said, though, that if you're going to get into the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And that blew everybody away because they couldn't think of anybody more moral or more deserving or more religious than the Pharisees. But then, on the other hand, we produce personal sins, sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins and overt sins. The mental attitude sins are really the worst because they are the they're the root of all the other sins. See, when you get engaged in gossip or maligning or slander, when you're engaged in uh, other 
overt sins, whether it's uh, sexual sin, sexual perversion, whether it's uh, murder, thievery, whatever it might be as an overt sin, it's primarily motivated by the undergirding mental attitude sin of jealousy or anger or hatred, bitterness, arrogance underlies everything. So these are the worst sins, and yet, yet in legalistic churches and superficial Christianity, what's always emphasized are the the overt sins, the socially unacceptable sins. And we've gone through the studies in the past where we've seen that in American culture, these socially unacceptable sins um, change from generation to generation. In one generation, it was socially unacceptable for Christians to ever think about consuming an alcoholic beverage. I read a survey taken in the early 50s in Christianity Today that that. 90, 90, 93% of all Christians interviewed said that it was a sin for Christians to partake of alcoholic beverage. Of course, that was a hangover from the legalism of the Second Great Awakening and the end of the 19th century and, and prohibition. But by 1981, less than 30 years later, Christianity Today ran another survey, and 85% of those respondents said that it was okay for Christians to drink in moderation, drink alcohol in moderation. That is a 180-degree shift, one of the greatest social shifts inside the church. You see, every generation has different different social sins, and uh, back in the 19th century, it was considered by many people to be a sin to own a slave. It was considered a sin to do to... Um, uh, partake of any alcoholic beverage. There were other social sins. Today it's, a, it's considered a social sin to um, not be uh, culturally sensitive. It's a, a social sin not to be politically correct. It's a uh, social sin to, uh, uh, to smoke. And who knows, before long, you know, recently, in case you're not aware of it, it was discovered that uh, there's some indication that when you fry potatoes above a certain temperature, it generates and produces a certain chemical that seems to produce cancer. So we're going to go from having smoking uh, what they call cigarettes cancer sticks to eating cancer fries. In a few more years, everybody's going to be suing McDonald's and Burger King and Every other restaurant they know and or Ida is in real trouble because they're all going to be sued because they're uh, uh, contributed to cancer. And see, it's socially unacceptable for some people to eat anything that might produce high cholesterol. So we, you know, the Word of God never addresses those things. They address the real issue of what sin is. And so people always tend to look and and, and generate their own categories and not pay attention to the scriptures. But when we are operating on the sin nature, we are always going to be moved in one of two directions. One trend, it's towards asceticism and legalism, producing morality, emphasis on trying to please God and impress God, and that leads to moral degeneracy. And on the other hand, we'll move towards licentiousness, lasciviousness, and antinomianism. That means rejecting any absolutes and thinking that, well, Jesus paid for it so I can get away with it. Uh, grace means it's covered. I don't have to confess it. I don't have to do anything. It's already paid for, so uh, I just just I can do whatever I want to. In fact, I've even heard some people who've come out of some doctrinal churches say there really are no. If you say there are any absolutes in the Christian life, any c- commands that we have to follow, then you're just in legalism. We can do anything. And that leads, of course, to immoral uh, degeneracy. This is the function of the sin nature, and the church at 
Corinth is loaded with all of them. In fact, sometimes they're going to be a little ascetic, and at other times they're going to be licentious. You see, we're, we're like that. Our, it's almost as if our sin natures have split personalities at times. And In fact, at times in your life you may notice that you're more licentious, and at other times in your life you may be a little more legalistic. So things are going to shift around. Just hope they don't shift back and forth from day to day. Then, you're, then you may be in real trouble. Verse 5, Paul goes to the issue here in understanding these divisions, and he's going to focus on the, the divine viewpoint role of the pastor, the teacher, and how they should be viewing them, not in the way the Greeks viewed the role of key figures. These aren't celebrities. They're not personalities to follow. They are all, in fact, servants of God. Each pastor-teacher serves a different function, has a different role to play in the maturation process of, of uh, the believers, the body of Christ, and the focus is not on the personalities, not on the individuals, but on God who's the one who produces growth. So Paul focuses the question with two rhetorical questions at the beginning of verse 5. Actually, it should be translated who rather than what. What we have here is an interrogative relative pronoun that is related to a masculine noun, so it should be masculine personal noun, so it should be uh, translated who then is Apollos and who is Paul. In other words, he's saying who are these people? What makes them so, so special? And then he answers the question. These are servants. See, the issue for the believer is to be a servant. To be a servant, you have to understand humility. To understand humility, you have to understand grace, and you have to be grace-oriented. And when you develop grace orientation and humility so that you can begin to live a life from this viewpoint of a servant, then you're imitating Christ, according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. When we are manifesting humility and grace orientation, what we are doing is giving testimony in our life to the superiority of a grace-oriented, humble attitude of a servant as opposed to the arrogant, uh, self-promoting attitude of Lucifer and the fallen angels. That's how we become a witness or a testimony in the angelic conflict. As we mature, we exhibit the character qualities that are just the opposite of those which Satan and the demons think are necessary in order to have real success and meaning in, in, uh, in the universe. So Paul says, the, we are servants through whom you believe. Through whom is a dia plus the genitive, which indicates an uh, intermediate agency. We, it, it, they just function as an intermediate role. Any pastor, any evangelist, any apostle just functioned in an intermediate role. Ultimately, it's God who is using them to produce uh, his will in human history. The servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. See, that opportunity is going to vary. Some of us will have more opportunity than others. Some will gain, some pastors and teachers, some evangelists will gain national prestige, and they, they may be given a wider range of ministry, whereas others are going to operate behind the scenes, unnoticed, unseen, and yet on a day-to-day basis they're going to sit down with co-workers and family members and anyone they run into at the at the grocery store or getting gas at the gas station, and they're just going to give the gospel. And nobody will ever know what they're doing except the Lord. And as a result of that hidden, unseen, invisible ministry, uh, many 
Many dozens or hundreds may even come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. So the opportunity that we have is going to vary from one to the other. What matters is not who has the greater opportunities, but what each of us does with the opportunities that God gives us. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, I planted... That was his role. He came and he's, here he is using an imagery from agriculture. I planted. That was his role. Paul founded the church. He was there for a while and taught them, and then he left to move on. After he left, then Apollos came in as the pastor, and Apollos taught more doctrine. So Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. You might say that if you applied that to Preston City Bible Church, you might say Ron McMurray planted and did a great job pastoring this church for the, what, 24 years that he was here. And that produced a tremendous amount of growth in many of you. And then God had a plan for him to move on and for me to come, and and I've watered, I've built on that. And and I couldn't have done what I've done if he hadn't done what he did. I mean, so, so many fantastic things that we've done in the last five years are really due to the foundation that Ron laid during those 24 years that he was here. And that's the same principle that that Paul is mentioning here. And there, there are others involved. Many of you have been involved with the ministry of pastor theme down in Houston. But each of us plays a different role. Each pastor has a, a different role. He's going to teach from a slightly different perspective. He's going to come from the realm of doctrine, the wealth of doctrine that he has learned and taught. And each one will play a role in your spiritual growth as you advance. So Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but who is it that causes the growth? It's God. God causes the growth. God is the one who produces spiritual growth. You take in the Word of God, you study the Word of God, and you apply the Word of God. But that's not growth. Growth is what happens behind the scenes. Growth is what God the Holy Spirit is doing when you follow the process of staying in fellowship, walking by the Holy Spirit, and making those decisions to apply doctrine. But that in itself doesn't produce growth because if it did, you could say, I'm producing growth by my application of doctrine. Your application of doctrine then becomes a means to growth, just as Paul's teaching becomes a means of the growth of the congregation. Apollo's teaching became a means to the growth of the congregation, but it's God who works to produce the spiritual growth and the spiritual advance. So Paul concludes in verse 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. In other words, the pastor really isn't anything. He's just a, a conduit. He's just a means. If, if God wanted to, he could, he could raise up the stones and the trees to communicate his word if, if necessary. So it's not the one who plants. It's not the pastor. It's not the personality. It is God who causes the growth. It's all about glorifying God not a personality, not a local church, not a pastor teacher, but it's all about glorifying God who is the one who gives us the doctrine, who gives us the Holy Spirit, who provided salvation, and it's God who causes the growth. Verse 8, Paul says, Now he who plants and he who waters are one. In other words, there's no distinction here like you Corinthians are wanting to make. You're wanting to drive a wedge between this pastor and that pastor and say, I follow him, I follow that one. But no, they're, they're all one. They're all being equally used by God in the process of producing growth in the congregation. It's not the one who plants nor the one uh, who waters because they're nothing. They are actually one in God's plan. They're each being used equally by God. And then he concludes and says, but each will receive his own reward 
according to his own labor. Now, each here refers to each of these pastor, teachers, or apostles. So there is accountability. Each will receive a reward. They're not going to get the same reward because that's it, it will differ. It is according to his own le- labor. Kata plus the accusative of kapas means according to a standard, and there is an absolute standard for the basis of reward, and that is how well they functioned in terms of the responsibility that God gave them. There's accountability in the Christian life. Rewards of the judgment seat of Christ are going to be handed out, not just simply because you trusted Christ as Savior. See, there are those who teach that. Lordship salvation teaches that all believers are going to get the same thing at the judgment seat of Christ. Frankly, that's socialism and that's communism. That, that destroys personal accountability. You know, there's an interesting application here, and that is that there's no welfare system in the spiritual life. You see, if we were to apply this principle, let's, let's apply this to um, uh, economics. You see, what it, if you follow the, the system of, the, of lordship salvation, everybody's going to get the same thing. That's like, well, you know, this person really did well. Boy, they, they made sure they were walking by the Holy Spirit. They were diligent in confessing their sin, and, and they were at Bible class day in and day out, learning doctrine, growing, advancing, uh, reaching spiritual maturity, recognizing the responsibilities of their priesthood, fulfilling their responsibilities of the priesthood. And yet when they get to heaven, this other believer who, who didn't make it very far, never really got out of first grade, well, they're going to get the exact same rewards because, you know, that there's a problem here, and that is we don't want to give this other person. They, they, they did so well, and have so, they have too much. You know, it's really wrong to give them too much. We want to give this other person who didn't have enough. We want to give them more. That's the same thing that happens in the uh, kind of economic system that uh, the, uh, of socialism and that most people want to operate on in this country. You know, some people just have way too much. You know, the well, the, the wealthy who have really used whatever it is God has given them to go out and build businesses and and to uh, in many cases build inventions and to to build companies and corporations. Well. They just have too much, so we want to take away from them and give to the people who, who really just kind of ignored their teachers in school and never really learned anything and never worked hard. They just expected somebody else to take care of them. See, that's just socialism, and that's not what the Bible teaches. The emphasis here is you get on the basis of what you did. It, it, they're, they're, if you didn't uh, use your spiritual assets to grow, then you won't have any rewards. That's the whole principle here. We're not going to find any concept here of, well, he didn't, he didn't really do so well spiritually, and um, so, so we're going to have to recognize that they just had a bad family life. He didn't go to the right schools and the right teachers, and, and he grew up in the Barrios. There really wasn't any, any Bible church anywhere around, and he was a drug addict. So we just have to recognize that they had these disadvantages, so we're going to give them rewards Anyway, I've even heard somebody say, well, you know, if it had been different, then uh, God would know what it would have been like if it was different. So God's going to give them rewards based upon what they would have done if things had been different. That's insane. You know, I've even heard some people say that, well, when somebody dies young, God's going to give them rewards of the judgment seat of Christ based on what what they would have done if they had lived longer. Well, that's just a, that's just another extension of socialism and communism at the judgment seat of Christ. You know, we're going to get what we 
we're going to get rewards based on what we actually do with the time that God gives us and the assets that that he gives us. And on that basis, God is going to have a perfect evaluation system. So we will be rewarded according to his own, each one's own labor, not according to what it might have been, could have been, should have been, but what it actually is. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field, God's blessing. Notice the shift here from first person plural we, that is Apollos and Paul, Cephas. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. So he's still using that analogy, but he's going to shift from the field metaphor to the building. Now remember, a metaphor is an implied comparison. A simile is a stated comparison, which would be you are like God's field. But he does say, he says, you are God's field, but you're not actually a field, are you? You don't look like a building to me. It's an implied comparison. He's going to change the metaphor from a field, an agricultural metaphor, to a building metaphor. He says, you are God's building, and this brings us to the key, one of the key passages on the judgment seat of Christ. Actually, there are three judgments in Scripture, and you have to distinguish them. And this is the judgment for believers called the judgment seat of Christ. Now, the concept of judgment is just the opposite of justification. The concept of judgment is condemnation. And First John, or John 3.18 says, He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So there is condemnation to the one who has not believed. But to the one who believes, there's not condemnation, but there will be an evaluation. The word that's used here, the key word in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, is docu- from, from the verb dokimazo, which means to test for approval. See, the focus isn't on, at the judgment seat of Christ, isn't on trying to figure out what you've done wrong and to bring it up to you at the judgment seat of Christ and rub your nose in it. The issue here is to get rid of all the stuff that you did that was wrong, that is the wood, wood, hay, and straw, and to leave that which is of eternal value. The focus is to demonstrate what, what we have done under the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by the Spirit and to be rewarded on the basis of that. Now let's get a little time frame here on our prophetic panorama. We're living in the church age. Those who are unbelievers go to Hades as a holding ground. We as believers will be raptured to be with Jesus Christ in the air at some undetermined time in the future. Could be tonight, could be tomorrow, could be 50 or 100 years from now. On earth there will be seven years of tribulation, but during this same time of the seven years of tribulation, there will be an evaluation judgment, an evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ for all believers, at the end of which there is the marriage of the Lamb, and then Jesus Christ returns at the second advent. Then we have our second judgment, which is the judgment of tribulation saints, and Satan and Lucifer, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet at the end of the tribulation. That's followed by the thousand-year millennium. And then there is the final great white throne judgment, which is the judgment of all unbelievers. And they go into the lake of fire, and we go, believers go into the new heavens and the new earth. So these are the three judgments, and we're just focusing on the first one here, 
the judgment seat of Christ. So the three judgments in the future are the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment of tribulation believers, and the great white throne judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10 states, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we have to understand the context here because this is not related to salvation, that if you're good, you have a, you'll go to heaven. If you're bad, you're not. What it's talking about is something a little different, so let's look at the context. Starting back in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 5, we read, Therefore, being always of good courage, and because we know causal participle, because we know that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, then there's a parenthetical break, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That's the role of the believers, to walk according to what God has said and not on the basis of empiricism or rationalism. We walk by means of faith, not by means of sight. When the Word of God is more real to you than your experience, than your emotions, than your circumstances, than anything else in life, that's when you are walking by means of faith because your focus is not on faith in faith, not, oh, I'll just believe it so, but because faith always has the object of the Word of God. You are believing the Word of God. Faith in something else, faith in faith, faith in and of itself is nothing. It's faith in the promises, principles, and provisions of God as revealed in the Scriptures. Verse 8, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. That's our priority is to please the Lord. Why? Because we know that uh, evaluation day is coming. In the old R.G. Lee sermon that was so famous for years, payday someday. You have to say that with the right homiletical intonation. When we come to the issue of the judgment seat of Christ, the term for judgment seat is the Greek word bema, which referred to the raised or elevated seat where the magistrate or tribunal would sit in the town square in one of the Greek cities. And it was in this judicial setting that decisions were made both for criminal cases and civil cases. So it is an evaluation setting, a, a place where decisions are made by the person who is in authority. Now I want you to notice as we look at this passage in 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says he'll be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. Actually, it's Literally, what he, the things he has practiced, and it's the Greek word proso, meaning to exert yourself in action. The standard expression would be for, for to do is, would be the Greek verb poieo, but that's not what we find here, and I think it's important to realize that Paul's using the word proso, practiced, as opposed to just what you have simply done. See, this is the same word that we find over in Galatians 5:19 to 21, where we have that list of the deeds of the flesh, and then at the end of verse 21 we read, "Just as I have forewarned you that those who proso, those who practice such things, will not inherit the kingdom of God." It's not simply that you did them; it was a habitual lifestyle living in carnality. And if you proso these things, then you will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and you will not inherit 
those rewards. So that brings us to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. Paul says, According to the grace which God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building upon it. But it, let each man be careful how he builds upon it. See, the point is that the foundation that was laid in our lives is the spiritual life, all the assets that were given by our position in Christ, the fact that we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. We have access to the filling of the Holy Spirit. We can walk by the Spirit. We have the completed canon of Scripture, the revelation of God. He's told us everything we need to know. He has revealed to us everything for life and godliness. There's nothing left unsaid, unstated, nothing you need to learn, no, no experience you need to gain. It's all yours at the instant of salvation, and that's the foundation. The issue is, what are you going to do with that? Paul says, it's according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. He preached the gospel. Another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. You must be careful how you build on that foundation of your spiritual life. It says, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. He's reminding them of what he said uh, back in chapter 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the foundation. And he says, now we're going to have a scenario here, a hypothetical. You're going to build your life from salvation on, and you're going to build something that, in, that includes different materials. Some of those materials are going to be produced by God, the Holy Spirit, when you walk by the Spirit. Those things are going to have eternal value. That's what he means by gold, silver, and precious stones, indestructible metals and indestructible jewels. But on the other hand, we're going to live according to the sin nature times, and we're going to produce things that have no eternal value. That's described through the metaphor of wood, hay, and straw. So this is, these are not literal elements. And, you know, some people try to take this too far, uh, and that's illegitimate. He's just drawing a distinction between that which has eternal value and that which has temporal value, that which is produced by the Holy Spirit and that which is not. The gold, silver, and precious stones is the only thing that has eternal value. But he says, each man's work will become evident. It will become manifest. Verse 13, each man's work will become manifest or revealed. That's our word that we've run into several times in our study of 1 John 3, phoneros. It means to make evident, make manifest, to demonstrate or to reveal. For the day will show it. And the day here refers to the day of, of judgment in terms of the judgment seat of Christ because it is to be revealed with fire. This is the image. You've built a house. Now, that's your life. When we hit the judgment seat of Christ, the Lord's going to put a torch to that to get rid of all of the stuff that doesn't have any value. And that's going to burn up all the wood, hay, and straw. So what's left is that gold, silver, and precious. It may not be apparent. You may look at this edifice that you've constructed in your life, and you don't know what is gold, silver, and precious stones and what's wood, hay, and straw. We can't evaluate that. We can't determine that. All we can do is, is walk by the Spirit. I'm going to... Uh, keep close accounts with God in terms of rebound. I'm going to try to think biblically about the issues in life. I'm going to apply the uh, problem-solving devices and spiritual skills to the issues of life and decisions I have to make. But, but I don't know when I've been in fellowship all the time and when I haven't, what's produced by the Holy Spirit, what, what is just a, a moral counterfeit I've produced. 
that will only be evident at the judgment seat of Christ. And then each man's work will be evident. The day will show it because it is revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And there's that verb I mentioned a minute ago, dokimazo, which means to evaluate or to, to test, to, to demonstrate the, the positive aspects. It's going to demonstrate the quality not the lack of quality. It's not to reveal the sin in your life, but to demonstrate the quality of your work. However, Paul says, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, whatever is left over, he will receive a reward. You will receive something. Uh, there will be different levels of rewards in heaven, and it will relate to our responsibilities and roles in the kingdom when we rule and reign with Jesus Christ after the second coming. On the other hand, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. Things will be taken away from him, not his salvation, because it says, goes, Paul goes on to say, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. He's still going to have salvation, still spend eternity in heaven, still have a resurrection body, still have joy, still be free from a sin nature, but those rewards, the, petition, the positions, the potentials that he had, if he had lived the Christian life, and matured are going to be taken away, and he will be without anything. In fact, it will be obvious. I think this is a point that John talked about in 1 John 2.28, that we need to be prepared for the return of the Lord, that we may not be ashamed at his coming. See, some are going to have everything burned up because they didn't make doctrine a priority in their life. There was always something else that was important that they had to do rather than be at church on Wednesday night or Bible class on Sunday morning or to listen to a tape while they were driving back and forth to work. And what's going to happen is they're going to be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that shame won't last forever because Scripture says that Jesus Christ himself will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears. The old things will pass away. But there will be a time of intense sorrow and shame at the judgment seat of Christ as you look at that lost opportunity and those lost privileges and those lost rewards that you could have had if you had only made the right decisions in life. So this is what Paul is arguing. It's not just a matter of, of who you follow. It's a matter of operating on divine viewpoint. It's, it's not a matter of simply being born again or regenerated. It's what you're going to do with it. Are you going to operate on the power of the Spirit, walk by means of the Spirit, or are you going to walk according to the flesh? It makes a difference, not just now, but it has an eternal impact in terms of our role and responsibilities in heaven. And so we say that what you, every decision you make today is going to determine what you're going to be in eternity with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word, to be challenged by the fact that as believers we will go through an evaluation process at the judgment seat of Christ. This is to motivate us, to encourage us, to stimulate us, to make sure that we do not take our salvation lightly, but recognize that there will be a time when we have to be held accountable for this life. This isn't legalism. It's understanding grace and what we do with grace. But there's some here this morning who may not know of their eternal destiny, may not be sure of their eternal salvation, and this is your opportunity to make that sure and certain.
Scripture teaches that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the one who does not accept Jesus Christ as Savior is eternally condemned and there is a judgment for you as well and the end result is eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. But Scripture says there's only one thing you need to do to avoid that destiny and that's to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You don't need to reform your life morally, bargain with God, join a church. You don't need to have any kind of religious experience or go through any ritual. All you need to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Scriptures make it clear there is uh, no, no condemnation to those who have believed in the name of the Son of God. Scripture says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all you have to do. Believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, was buried and rose the third day, according to the Scriptures. Once you do that, God does innumerable things in your life. Among them, you are regenerated, you receive a new human spirit, you receive the Holy Spirit, and you receive eternal life. But these are not experiential. You won't feel it. But nevertheless, they are yours. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.